so I'm glad you all are with us this morning. Everything working okay audio-wise? Good. So a handful of years ago, our family was invited by, and they don't know I'm telling this story, John and Kim, do it, <laughs> to attend our first Cal football game. As yes, go Bears. <laughs> Their son Josh was playing in the marching band. They went to lots of the home games to see him during that era. And we were excited for this chance to attend, to hang out with the DeWitts. They're awesome, of course, um, to watch Josh play in the band. But it should be known that sports in general is not something that the Martins are very serious about. <laughs> we don't watch sports for fun. None of our kids have shown really any interest in playing sports. So our interactions with sporting events, that those are rather sparse. Um, so as such, it was the midst of like a busy Saturday and, you know, we're running around doing lots of activities and like, oh yeah, and then we'll head to the stadium and watch the game with John and Kim. And we just didn't really think too much about like what was on our bodies. We were all dressed casually, comfortably, and that's like about as much as thought as we put into things. However, as we started making our way to our seats, I noticed people kept like making noises and seeming to boo as we walked by. It took a moment for me to recognize it was something about my physical presence that was soliciting responses. You see, my comfortable t-shirt that I had put no thought into that day happened to be the color red. And as any good Cal fan knows, Red is the color of their most bitter crosstown rival, Stanford. So even if the game isn't against Stanford, which this was not, uh, if you walk into the Cal Stadium where blue and gold is the definite norm, you, and you make the bold choice of wearing something red, you are going to solicit a response. This is what I learned that day. You're seen as offensively celebrating the enemy, Stanford. You will hear people tell, yell at you, take off that red shirt. And then you'll sheepishly apologize to John and Kim, <laughs> graciously accept their sweatshirt to cover up your misdeed. Oh, well, I start with this little anecdote for reasons that might become clear a bit later in our teaching. As we commence on this um, final teaching in the series we've been doing in this series in recent months called uh, A Story-Shaped Faith, a series in which we've been looking at some of these parables of Jesus. And today we're going to end our time looking at perhaps, I would say, one of the most famous parables of Jesus, a story that's become known throughout history um, and very often talked about, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Okay, this parable is a story that's come to be a part of our collective cultural consciousness, even for those who may have never even read the Bible. Um, the story comes from Luke 10. So perhaps per many people who've never even looked at that have heard of the Good Samaritan. A Good Samaritan's become, thank you, a term used to refer to a person who charitably steps in and helps a stranger in our kind of common lexicon. Good Samaritan laws have been passed in all 50 states to protect local heroes and heroines so they might not be liable if their aid work turns out to be unsuccessful or there's other complications that result because of it. 
We have hospitals and other charitable organizations that have taken on this identity of a good Samaritan, embracing the call to provide refuge and care that the story is famous for. But as we've been discussing throughout this series, the parables Jesus told were meant not just to prove some nice pithy moral instruction, like it's good to help people. Um, they were meant to disturb, to challenge, to provoke. A couple of millennia later, many of these stories, I think, have become domesticated. They no longer carry the same punch Jesus's audience would have experienced in the hearing. A story teaching that it's good to help strangers, certainly nice not particularly challenging for us. And I don't think it would have been particularly challenging for Jesus's audience either. So today I'm gonna to invite us to just consider a new, an old familiar story and see if, if we probe a bit, we might find some ways that this tale might've actually been more provocative to Jesus's listeners than we might give it credit for and might still have some provoking to do in us as well. Okay, so that's what we're gonna try. So I'm gonna read, start by reading the passage for today, which comes from Luke chapter 10, beginning with verse 25. Now, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus saying, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you understand it? The expert answered, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the expert wanting to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him and went off leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, but when he saw the injured man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was traveling came to where the injured man was, and when he saw him, he felt compassion for him. He went up to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever else you spend, I will repay you when I come back this way. Which of these three do you think became a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in religious law said, the one who showed mercy to him. So Jesus said to him, go and do the same. Okay, so before we get to the parable itself, we need to look at the setup because certainly that is a part of understanding the intent of Jesus in telling this parable, at least the way it's recounted here in Luke. So the account begins with Jesus fielding this question. It's not coming from anyone. The text tells us this person is a lawyer, an expert in the religious law, who's putting Jesus to the test. Now, it's not totally clear what the motive is here. Is this person nefariously trying to trap Jesus or just simply engaging in some like scholarly back and forth banter? Either way, this is one of those places where Jesus brilliantly responds by answering a question 
with another question, right? Rather than playing into the law expert's hand, whatever his intention is, Jesus punts the question back at him. What must I do to inherit eternal life is the original question. And Jesus responds, well, well, how do you understand the law? So he's saying, well, you're a legal expert, right? Shouldn't you know? So why don't you tell me what you think? Now, what this lawyer responds with is impressive. It even seems so to Jesus because he reaches for two different laws from the Hebrew Bible. This is not just one quote he's giving. Okay, these are two different statutes that occur among many, 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 many others in two totally different places of the Hebrew scriptures. One's in Deuteronomy and one's in Leviticus. And he lifts these two out and holds them up as like the core essentials around which all of the law itself is built. So the first statute he grabs is commonly known as the Shema. And it was a central verse, and still is, that observant Jewish people pray twice a day. Deuteronomy 6.4 reads, listen, Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And Shema is the Hebrew word for listen, which is why this verse itself has come to be known as the Shema. So the passage goes on and says, you must love, after the listen piece, you must love the Lord your God with your whole mind, your whole being, and all of your strength. So that's the first statute that the legal expert correctly identifies as pretty central. The second comes from somewhere totally different, Leviticus 19. In the midst of a series of laws dealing with issues of justice, verse 18 reads, um, you must not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the children of your people, but you must love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So it's as if the man is saying, there are thousands of statutes throughout the Torah, but if you had to boil them down, they come to this, love God, love neighbor. And he does this well. Elsewhere in scripture, in the gospels, we have folks asking Jesus similar questions about like, what does it all boil down to? And Jesus himself brings together these two laws and proclaims them as the core truths. What, what some scholars have called the love command that Jesus brings forward. And the legal expert, he gets there himself. He's like on target and Jesus praises him for it. You have answered well. But as this man demonstrates in his next question to Jesus, who is my neighbor? This love command taken at face value, at least it seems like for the, for the lawyer, could be seen as a bit problematic. It's problematic because loving God and neighbor wholeheartedly maybe is easier said than done. Clearly this guy thinks, or maybe the lawyerly part of him, thinks it's important to actually have some parameters around how we understand how this is supposed to be applied, right? The legal expert seeks to clarify those parameters in an attempt, it says, to justify himself. What does that mean? Well, there was a group of Jews in Jesus's day, um, perhaps this man was a part of it, we don't know, who held the opinion that the obligation for loving others extended only to a, a certain group, the righteous perhaps. And so if Jesus agrees with this point of view, then no doubt this person feels that they're set. They are justified before God because at least in their view, they are supposedly loving, righteous people like themselves. Perhaps that's what he's looking for from Jesus, assurance that he is doing what's expected. But of course, Jesus is not about to let him off the hook. 
Instead, he's going to use this question, who is my neighbor, to teach a lesson. And from there comes our parable. So now we get to the story itself. Jesus' story starts with a setup that would have been very familiar to his audience. The story Jesus chooses to tell is about a man whom we can presume to be a Jewish person walking from Jerusalem, the capital of, 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 of Judea, to Jericho, which is in Samaria. And this would have been a meaningful setting to everyone in Jesus's audience. The 17 mile desert road that descended about 3,300 feet from Jerusalem to Jericho was treacherous, winding, and a favorite haunt of robbers. It was a potentially dangerous place to be. Everyone there would have known it. Think certain areas in the, certain neighborhoods in the East Bay. Think Tenderloin in San Francisco. There's a reputation for this space. It is not known to be a safe place. Okay, so what is happening to this man would not have been a shock to anyone. Probably a lot of the folks hearing Jesus' story know somebody who's experienced violence in this area. Perhaps they live in fear of it themselves whenever they find themselves having to go through that road to Jericho, which it was the, the quickest way in, to get towards the north, the north part of, of, the, of the land they lived in. So, so people did do that. Um, but there's a sense of you're, you're, you're feeling the danger of it, okay? These listeners did not have a title for the story that helped them focus on a particular character. I think it's important to keep that in mind, right? So as they're hearing the story, I don't think they would have called it the Good Samaritan. They would have called it the man attacked on the road to Jericho. That's the protagonist of the story. That is who they're invited to imagine themselves to be. So the story invites those listeners to experience, as this wounded person, multiple encounters with the possibility of help. Let's consider what those are. First comes the priest. He's one of the special class of Jewish people who minister on behalf of all the Israelites in the temple, making sacrifices there on their behalf. And the priest, seeing the man lying half dead in the road, keeps his distance, passes by on the other side of the road. Next comes the Levite. Now, a Levite was kind of a tier below priests in terms of their, um, their significance in like the religious life of Judaism. So they took care of administrative details in regards to temple worship, not the sacrifices themselves, but they were still like a special religious class of Israelites. Like, I don't know, just like a very quick and dirty parallel is like, you know, our, our friends, the DeWitts and all the others who are here, you know, setting up church every Sunday. They might not be the ones speaking to you, but they are doing important tasks that are making this whole thing happen. Okay, so we've got the priests and we've got the Levites who are attending to the temple and making it all happen. Does that make sense? So when the Levite passes by, he, like the priest, also chooses to pass by on the other side of the road, does not get near the injured man. So what would Jesus's original audience have thought of these two characters and their choice to keep their distance? Many Christians, many scholars, you know, have preached sermons or written papers about these two passing by out of a distance, a desire to like maintain religious 
purity. And I think honestly, those arguments can be a bit anti-Semitic because they can be used to kind of cast like a, a, a characterization of all of Judaism, that there's this um, kind of view that is overly um, scrupulous and it keeps one from being able to interact with mercy. And I think that's harmful. And I don't think that's actually what Jesus was saying, especially to the audience he's speaking it to. Um, so according to that argument, I'll just explain the logic a little. The reason for their inaction is connected to purity laws concerning handling a corpse. So it is true that um, observant Jewish people, and most especially priests, had strong restrictions around how to follow, um, that they had to follow regarding touching corpses. And there could be a sense of like, if you touched a corpse, you can't just go and work in the temple now. There has to be purification that happens. Okay, so some would argue these people were trying to stay clear to avoid becoming ceremonially unclean, assuming that the man might be dead and they don't want to take any chances, that they could be like, you know, become unpure uh, from getting close. But Jesus does not give us that information in the story. And a deeper understanding of Jewish thought and practice would lead us away from those kind of assumptions about religious purity being prioritized over compassion and care. It was actually considered of great importance in Jewish life and still is to do what was necessary to preserve another's life and also to protect the dignity of the dead, including a general call to always attend any abandoned corpse that might be found. These would always be seen as the higher goods than some issue of impurity. So listeners of Jesus's story, I think, would have understood that. They would likely have been surprised and disappointed that both of these leaders of their faith lacked the moral character to follow through on what should clearly have been the right thing to do when encountering another in trouble. They might have imagined that these two were more concerned with their own physical safety in that moment, walking on that dangerous road. They were aware what happened to this person could happen to me. I better keep moving. So they passed quickly by, which is an understandable and disappointing response. These disappointments for Jesus's audience then would set up their response to the third character who's going to approach the wounded person. So once again, as I've been working on this teaching, I've been appreciating the scholarship and insights from Dr. Amy Jill Levine, who is herself a Jewish New Testament scholar. And at this point in the story, Dr. Levine sees Jesus using a common literary device, a common storytelling device, what might be called the rule of three. So the rule of three contains a list of three things that go together. The first two set up the third. They tell you how to think about what's coming next. They give you a preview of what to expect. So think, you know, in our common parlance, you'll, you'll hear the term like men, women, and children or in Christianity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? As, as Dr. Levine points out, um, anyone who's familiar with the Three Stooges, when you hear Larry and Moe, you immediately think Curly, right. So as Dr. Levine points out, mention a priest and a Levite, and anyone who knows anything about Judaism will know the third person is an Israelite. Levine points out multiple places throughout the Hebrew scriptures where this formula is used. Something pertains to priests, Levites, and then general Israelites. It would be an intuitive set of categories for Jesus's listeners. 
But Jesus is not playing to convention. He's using a convention to shock and provoke. So rather than reaching for the expected Israelite, the, the person that is going to clearly identify with all of the people listening, the common, the common man or woman, Jesus supplies another character, a Samaritan. To Amy Jill Levine, she says it this way. In modern terms, this would be like going from Larry to Mo to Osama bin Laden. Yes, right? That's a shocking statement. But in translating Jesus's subversion of the rule of three this way, I think Dr. Levine is helping us understand the impact of the challenging resonance of this story to Jesus's listeners and helping us recover how challenging it's meant to be to us. You see, this story only provokes the way Jesus intended it to if we really have a better sense of the relationship between Samaritans and Jewish people in the ancient world. Now, some Christians have misunderstood this relationship as being one of like majority culture and the marginalized, understanding the Samaritan to be a kind of social outcast, somebody with significantly less social power than the Jewish people Jesus is speaking to. So sermons have been preached, comparing the Samaritan to this person with of like lower social caste. Perhaps the Samaritan is recast as the trans person of color who helps the cis white guy on the road. And while I think that could be a compelling story, it's not actually the story Jesus is telling. Dr. Levine is clear that the understanding of Jews and Samaritans as Jewish people having this significant social power that Samaritans don't have, that's not the world that, the, that Jesus's audience would have experienced. In his time, this was a story about two people groups with relatively similar amounts of social power who had been in deep rivalry with each other for a long time. And there's a lot of enmity between them, the kind of rancor that's particularly potent when two groups are kind of in very close proximity to each other and they share potentially a lot of overlap in their culture and their history. It's the kind of enmity that caused people to shout at me for wearing red in that blue washed stadium. Of course, these dynamics of enmity between groups that share a lot of common history and culture show up in more nefarious ways than a cross-town football rivalry. Think of contemporary Israelis and Palestinians, Russians and Ukrainians, for that matter. This gives you a better sense of the social dynamics between first century Israelites and Samaritans, the origins of these two people groups reached back centuries where there was a political division and the nation of Israel became the northern and southern kingdoms. And those two kingdoms became political rivals. Each of them had their own challenging moments of history in which, you know, first the Assyrians kind of wiped out much of the northern kingdom. We've talked about the southern kingdom going to, into exile. Each of them had their own sordid history and how things played out. And over time, those challenging moments of history exacerbated the differences between these groups. And these groups had ethnic and real, real ethnic and sectarian tensions between them. Both worshiped the same God of Israel, but in different ways. Both were convinced that they were right, 
the other was wrong. Both had questions about ethnic purity of their, their group versus the other. And so there was a history of violence and war through the centuries between these people. And even when things were relatively peaceful, the cultural hostility often remained. Understanding that context, I think is important in understanding how the story is meant to challenge, how it's designed to provoke. The story invites the typical Jewish listener to imagine themselves hurt and vulnerable in a, in a very um, relatable situation, and then be disappointed by the folks they thought should have helped them. And then they are approached by a person they have been socialized for centuries to see as a bitter rival, as an enemy. And then to discover that this is the person that is coming to save their life. The parable confronts the listener's deepest biases by asking, who would you accept help from? From who would you resist it? Are you too good to have your life saved by someone you think is deplorable? What if they're the only one offering? In our era of political polarization, I think this story has at least one challenging ring, if we're open to hearing it. I would argue that American politics is an epic social rivalry many of us find ourselves in. How would many of us feel to be that person on the side of the road, passed by by our own political heroes? only offered care by the voter on the other side of the aisle, the one whose point of view we find offensive. Could we accept the hand of the Samaritan extended our way? And of course, as the story proceeds, we see that unexpected activity from this Samaritan person isn't just a one-time offer of care. It's an ongoing, life-sustaining care they commit to the Samaritan brings the injured person to an inn. He pays the innkeeper to care for him, despite perhaps the innkeeper's own cultural biases. He takes ownership of the well-being and restoration of this person he's encountered, not because they're from the same tribe, but because the Samaritan understands the injured man's need. And he's willing to care for him. He's willing to do the work of neighboring. For many of us who grew up in the 70s and 80s, and maybe even the 90s, the word neighbor has a particular ring to it. The ring of a voice of a man named Fred Rogers. Many of you probably know at least some of the story of Mr. Rogers, and if so, you know he was not your average TV personality. Some of the most powerful portraits we have of Fred Rogers come through the writings of a journalist named Tom Janud. I might be mispronouncing his name, I'm not sure. Um, and after profiling Mr. Rogers, this journalist unexpectedly received the gift of an ongoing friendship with him, a fictionalized version of which appears in the Tom Hanks film that came out a few years ago called A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. So Tom Janud in his writings paints this picture of the man behind the cardigan sweater. When he first encountered Mr. Rogers in 1998, he went in pretty cynical. It was another age of cynicism. This was the year of the whole Clinton impeachment drama. 
But Mr. Janud's cynicism about Fred Rogers was broken down pretty quickly, just spending a little time with him. The original profile he wrote in Esquire, which is still online, and I highly recommend it. It is just a beautiful portrait um, of Fred Rogers, you know, really communicated that he found this person to be a man of deep faith, who believed to his core that all people were worthy of care and love. In his time with Mr. Rogers, Tom saw the way he interacted with people and could feel that what he emits on the TV show the astonishment, the kindness, the curiosity about the world was entirely consistent with who he actually was. It wasn't a show. Fred Rogers was a person of deep humility, consistency, and character. He woke early every morning and prayed for two hours a day for the many people he cared for or the people who wrote him emails. He swam every morning. He didn't drink or eat meat. He weighed the same 143 pounds his whole adult life. And he approached everyone he met with genuine gratitude and care that was contagious. So a couple of years ago, when the Tom Hanks film was released, Tom Janud again was invited to reflect on his friendship with Mr. Rogers two decades later. And in an article, I think it was in The Atlantic, he reflected on how he was often asked um, how Fred would have responded to the moments we've experienced in recent years. If, if Fred Rogers was still here, how would he respond to the era of Trump and Twitter and the fraying of our social fabric? And so um, Tom Janud wrote this in late 2019. It was the day of two horrible mass shootings, one in El Paso, Texas, and one in Dayton, Ohio. And I have to say, I wrote this yesterday, and I don't even know the details, but I understand that there's been a shooting much closer to home um, that I just received information about this morning. So if, you, if I'm breaking the news on that, I'm sorry. Um, I, again, I don't even know the details. It was like Jason mentioned this to me as I'm heading out the door today, but I'm just feeling, wow, this feels resonant. I believe Sacramento is what I heard. So Janud shared a Mr. Rogers memory and a reflection on it on that day in 2019. When I first visited the neighborhood 21 years ago, one of his in-house writers had a Sherapin told me what had happened when, he did, when Fred had enlisted her to write a manual intended to teach doctors how to talk to children. She worked hard on it, using all her education and experience in the field of child development. And when she handed him her opening, he crossed out what she'd written and replaced it with six words. You were a child once too. And that's it really. His message to doctors was his message to politicians, CEOs, celebrities, educators, writers, students, everyone. It was also the basis of his strange superpowers. He wanted us to remember what it was like to be a child so that he could talk to us. He wanted to talk to us so that we could remember what it was like to be a child. And he could talk to anyone, believing that if you remembered what it was like to be a child, you would remember that you were a child of God. The question then isn't what Fred would do, what Fred would say in the face of outrage and horror, because Fred was the most stubbornly consistent of men. He would say that Donald Trump was a child once too. He would say that the latest Twitter victim or villain was a child once too. He would even say that the mass murderers of El Paso and Dayton were Sacramento were children once too. 
and he would be heartbroken that children have become both the source and the target of so much animus. He would pray for the shooters as well as for their victims. And he would continue to urge us in what has become one of his most oft quoted lines to look for the helpers. Fred Rogers, like the Samaritan in the story, seemed to consider the work of neighboring his daily vocation. It was not about who. The lawyer parrying with Jesus was asking the wrong question. For Jesus, for the Samaritan, for Fred Rogers, the distinction of my neighbor and not my neighbor does not exist. All human beings were children once too. All human beings are children of the divine. The question this parable is actually inviting us into is not who is my neighbor, but how do I neighbor? How do I neighbor? How do I show up with help for the other human being in my midst? How do I allow myself to be helped by those I'd consider beyond my circle? If we are truly to love God and love neighbors, that means enacting the divine affection we've received, the grace, the mercy we've received toward all we have the opportunity to connect with. It means making ourselves vulnerable, allowing ourselves to receive care from whoever might offer it in good faith. It means recognizing that those we instinctually might be called to dismiss or reject might sometimes be the ones we need to watch and learn from to go and do likewise. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the parable of the weed and the weeds, a parable that carried, I think, a similar tenor of provocation to not rip out people from our lives because we saw their ideas um, as offensive, right? but consider how we might navigate the mess of being in relationship while resisting demonizing others, even as we confront the harmful ideas themselves. I think this provocative story of Jesus has a similar thrust, but takes that messy reality maybe even a step further. It asks us to see the other, not just as human, not just as more than the toxic beliefs we disagree with. It also means allowing our lives to be engaged, not just in a way of tolerance, but in an interdependent way with those we might think are outside our tribes. Yikes, right? <laughs> That's hard. I'm just going to say, ouch. And maybe that means we're getting closer to it, right? If this, pro if this is the provocation Jesus is inviting us into, then it's meaning, it means it's, it's about recognizing, like the law expert himself had to confess, that neighboring is not about who you are, but about how you show up, how you demonstrate mercy to others, and that that's true of each of us, and it means going and doing like those who show mercy, even if your models are the least, the last people you would expect them to be. Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood began and ended every episode with a song that he had written, a song with an invitation that's profoundly subversive if we let it actually ring 
as broadly and, and inclusively as I think Fred Rogers intended it to ring. Would you be mine? You, whatever background you come from, whatever social categories separate us, would you be mine? Could you be mine? You who is now or who was once a child and who is definitely a child of God, could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? What would it mean if we could all be so bold in extending that kind of invitation and in embodying it? What might it mean if we could be so courageous as to accept that invitation? from an unexpected source. What kind of a neighborhood might we find ourselves in? Might it not be one like what Jesus had in mind when he described the loving kingdom of God? May we continue to be a part of co-creating with the divine, that expansive neighborhood together. Amen. <laughs>